A Cascades Airways flight is doing short hops across Washington when the last one does not end well. What caused this flight to crash on approach to Spokane, Washington? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Hello. Hello. Miranda moved into her new place. Woo! I did. That was so stressful. And Christy starts a new job tomorrow. Woo! Woo! We'll probably talk more about all that stuff in the post-episode, so yeah. if you want to listen to that, you should be a patron. But there's the quick life updates. Yep. Quick, quick, quick. Remember that listener episodes for August are your flight school stories, or school ah, yes. stories of some kind, Which? or stories. Nick will talk about in the post-episode. I'm probably going to be going to flight school sometime in the distant, not-so-distant future. So, yeah. Cool stuff for all of us. Yay. Yeah. Okay. What are we covering today, Nick? (laughs) We are covering Cascade Airways Flight 201. No, you've never heard of it before. Nope. Nope. (laughs) Nope. I have not. You are correct. Thank you to our patron, Janice, for recommending this crash thanks for recommending one that nobody's heard of it's that's fun it's fun to cover stuff people haven't heard of yeah there's also not a wikipedia page for this no it actually doesn't even come up on the accidents for the airplane type on wikipedia which i thought was weird someone screwed up it wasn't me (laughs) so so this happened on january 20th of 1981 so 40 and a half years ago okay over 40 and a half years ago this was a Beechcraft Beach 99A. Yep. Never heard of that one nope. before. No, but if you know what a King Air is, then this is very, very similar. Ah. Uh, it's basically the same thing, just not pressurized, and it has square windows. Okay, then. It's very similar. Gotcha. Really, that's the Queen Air, but there's a few differences in this one that make it more airliner-ish. It was a, definitely a utility airplane. This one had the tail number in November 390 Charlie Alpha. Cascade. Cascade, yep. They were operating this as a Part 135, or a charter, operation flight. However, that doesn't mean that it's not necessarily regularly scheduled, but it is a regularly scheduled charter flight. From Seattle to, ready for this, Yakima, Washington, Moses Lake, Washington, and then Spokane, Washington. Okay, then. So it, hops. it crosses all the way across Washington, but on short little hops. Yep. Hippity hop. Captain for the flight today is David Weinberger. He was 36 years old at the time. He actually had 11,680 hours, which for the airplane type... Dang, I'm, pretty I'm good. I'm amazed. Of which 7,000 hours of those 11,000 hours were on the type. Dang. So wow. He was very experienced on this airplane. He must have liked it. First officer was Paul Davis. He was 32 years old. He had 8,242 hours total, so also pretty experienced. He had 3,102 of those hours on the airplane type. Nice. So both of them were very familiar with the airplane. The flight crew arrived at the operations office at Walla Walla, Washington. Walla Walla. That's the fun (laughs) thing. At 0500 or 5 a.m. to begin their day. They pre-flighted the airplane and then carried out a flight to Seattle via Richland, Washington. The flight arrived in Seattle at 7.33 a.m. 
Flight 201, the other direction now, then departed Seattle on time at 8.05 a.m. on an instrument flight rules flight plan, or IFR. The flight arrived at Yakima 13 minutes late, however, huh, due to weather. The flight continued to Moses Lake, arriving 25 minutes late there, landing at 9.50, again delayed due to weather. The flight was then supposed to carry out the final leg departing Moses Lake at 9.35 a.m., but instead the flight departed at 10.55 a.m. due to weather conditions at Spokane. So, almost an hour and a half later mm. than it was supposed to. Rather be safe than sorry, though. Yes. The flight departed Moses Lake with two crew and seven passengers. The first officer was the pilot flying for this leg, and the captain was the pilot monitoring for this last leg. That is actually assumed, and in the report they said that they based this on radio transmissions at departing, when they were departing. You will so, probably already have some guesses about what I'm going to say in my section. Yep. But the gist of that is, they didn't know for sure, but from the way their procedures work, they're assuming, based on how the radio transmissions went with ATC, that the first officer is a pilot flying, captain is pilot monitoring. The flight over to Spokane was uneventful until the approach. At 11.16 a.m. and 15 seconds, the flight contacted the Spokane Approach Controller, West Arrival Controller. Yes, that is all one thing. Okay. And reported being at 8,000 feet and having information Mike from the ATIS, as we've talked about before, the Automated Terminal Information System. So it's the system that gives you all the weather yep. and notams for the airport. You basically just tune to a frequency and it says it on loop. Information Mike, in this case, had informed the crew that the weather at Spokane was 200 feet broken ceilings. So, in other words, 200 feet above the airfield was broken clouds, visibility of half mile, fog, and a temperature of 31 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's cold and you can't see anything. It's cold and you can't see anything. There's fog and very low ceilings. The ATIS also told the crew that runway 21 was in use for ILS approaches, or instrument landing systems. The air traffic controller responded to their initial call, telling the flight to turn to a heading of 050 for vectors to ILS runway 21 and to maintain 6,000 feet. At 11.16 a.m. and 46 seconds, the air traffic controller informed the flight that they had changed the active runway to the opposite direction now, runway 3, followed by vectors to line up for the other runway for landing. So they now had to change the vectors on the flight to the other direction. The air traffic controller then instructed the flight to descend to 4,000 feet. At 11.21 a.m. and 8 seconds, the air traffic controller informed the flight that they would be, quote, vectored across final for spacing, end quote. Reason for that is because they were still landing airplanes from the other side that had already been put onto that approach. A few moments later, the flight was transferred to another air traffic controller while the flight was 10 miles south of the Spokane Vortac, or V-O-R-T-A-C, which stands for the Very, Very High, high frequency, frequency Omnidirectional Range Tactical Aircraft Control. Yeah, there you go. So this is just a VOR. We've talked about VORs in the past, but a Vortex specifically is also used by the military, the tactical oh, side. Oh, right, 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 right. It's their, their version of a VOR. They use them as well. They're charted for military as well. And most VORs in the country are Vortex, so they are usable by both, but not all of them are. 
At 11.22 a.m. in 10 seconds, the flight crew asked the air traffic controller if they were going to get their turn for final. They were getting a little antsy, wanting to turn in. The air traffic controller stated that they would once they had the spacing on a jet on final on the other end of the runway, so still waiting on somebody else to land. The flight acknowledged the given information. Then at 11.22 and 23 seconds, so only a handful of seconds later really, the air traffic controller gave the flight a left turn to 030. At 11.23 and 35 seconds, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to turn left again to heading 360. Moments later, the air traffic controller told the flight that the localizer is 6 miles from O-Lake, final approach fix, and cleared them for the approach. So they were. So what he was saying when he said localizer should be up is that he had to change the localizer frequency. You can only have one on at a time. So he had to wait for everyone who's landing on runway 21 to be done landing. Oh, so you don't have a, a, a collision in the middle of the runway. Yeah, yes. so he was saying localizer should be up because he changed it. So now they can use it. Yeah. And they are six miles from Oat Lake, which is in a VOR intersection. We that talked about that in our New York collision, collision yes. episode. Correct. This is not a collision. Spoiler alert. Yep. <laughs> the crew acknowledged the localizer and that they were cleared for the approach. And then at 11.25 a.m. and 45 seconds, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to contact the tower controller. The flight crew replied, quote, Roger, end quote. And that was the last time that they would ever be heard from. Dun, dun, dun. dun. At 11.27 a.m., the flight crashed into a plowed field after initially impacting a small rise in the terrain. That is how it was defined in the the report. A witness saw the airplane strike the ground and become airborne again before impacting a second time. Then they, along with another witness, saw the airplane burst into flames. Uh Uh-oh. Yep. Two crew and five passengers perished in the accident. Two passengers were seriously injured but survived. Both, That's interesting. Both surviving passengers boarded the flight in Yakima. The survivors were on either side of the airplane, one near the front and one in the middle of the cabin, one on the right in the front, one on the left in the middle. Both passengers agreed that they were unaware of how close the airplane was to the ground until they struck the ground, and there was no signs that it was going to happen because, you know, fog, they were clouds flying quickly, ah. and the ground rose up to meet them. But they're using a localizer, right? So mm-hmm. why did they mm-hmm. hit we'll the ground? We'll get into that. Did they put in the wrong thing? These... I'll get into it. Yes. The survivors also stated that there was no change in the engine power before impact, so it didn't seem like the crew... Knew either. Knew either. Well, obviously, if you think you're on an IFR, and or you think you're on a localizer, and it's supposed to lead you to the runway... And clearly they didn't They didn't do something right. Cause... We'll, add, we'll add to the mystery. One of the survivors believed that the landing gear was cycled several times before impact. What? There was, also, there was also no announcement before the accident. Yeah, made. well, if the crew didn't know, then, right. you know. The, yeah. Both survivors were wearing their seatbelts, though one was thrown from his seat, as the seat was not properly attached to the to wall. To the floor. <laughs> to the Great. wall and the floor. Great. They couldn't, I believe I read something the saying... The floor mounts were never found. Yeah. Oh, well, that's terrible. great. Yeah. Nope. The other survivor was strapped to their seat after they came to rest, but was laying on their back as the seat had broken from the wall. Oh. But was still mounted to the floor. Oh. 
Other passengers, however, were thrown from their seats as they weren't wearing their seatbelts. That's not great. Wear your seatbelt on descent. They did not survive. That was on account of the two surviving witnesses. They saw them fly from their seats. Oh, that's horrifying. That's nightmares for the rest of your life. Yes. One survivor escaped the airplane, then went to help the other survivor, as he had noticed the other survivor moving about, helped him get free of the wreckage, and then they were about 15 feet away from the airplane when they witnessed the right engine burst into flames. Explode? Yes. That's probably some third-degree burns. Yep. Ouch. That's it. They saw the fire go through the cabin, if that helps at all but they, i don't well that basically kind of makes anybody who it potentially, engulfed yeah yes engulfed everything pretty quickly yeah well this investigation was performed by the n t s b correct yeah and as i alluded to earlier and you may have picked up on they were unable to recover any black boxes why Did they have black boxes? Quote, the aircraft was not equipped, nor was it required to be equipped with flight recorders. Aha! End quote. That was my thing. I was, you're like, you're going to talk about it later. And I was like, does that mean they don't have one? Yeah. Yes. Yes, it does. One of their recommendations, I'm assuming, because they talked about it in the analysis briefly, was, can you please require these? Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. <Yeah. laughs> How so, many passengers were on this flight? Seven. Seven, seven, seven? passengers oh, okay. and two crew. I'm pretty sure it still wouldn't be required. No, I think it's like 17 or more or something, something like, like that. Something like that. But you I mean, you still have them anyway. I feel like yeah, if it's going to yeah. be, if you're going to do passenger quote unquote, flights, commercial passenger, quote unquote flights, you should have black boxes. I think it's pretty much standard in all 135 and 121 operations as long as, yes, they're above a certain seat number, but this ain't it. Yeah. Anyway, so that sucked. Yeah. Time to rule some things out. And when I go through these very quickly, as they do in the report, just know that the investigation itself doesn't go that quickly when ruling these things out. The next couple sentences probably took months to figure out. Investigators did not find any evidence of failure in the flight controls, the systems, the structure, or the engines. Okay, so the airplane was okay. This was backed up by the survivors, and one of them specifically said that there were no unusual engine noises. One function of the altimeter called Mode C was not working, but it wasn't required for the flight and didn't change the accuracy of any of the instruments displayed, which is in fact proved because the flight crew had flown it previously the, that day with no issue. Uh, yeah, they they were flying this plane across Washington fine. They're fine. Yeah. So, the accident had obviously occurred on landing, so the investigators tried to piece together what they could of the landing sequence without any data recorders. The wreckage showed that the flaps were at an appropriate approach setting and the landing gear was down, the last steps in Cascade Airways' landing checklist, so we know that checklist was completed. Now, here's where things get a little hinky. That checklist is required by the airline to be completed before the O-Lake intersection, which is an invisible crossing of airways in the sky that flight crews use for navigation. This particular intersection was on the center line of the approach course and was four and a half miles from the runway threshold. After this intersection, the crew could descend below the prescribed 3,500 feet down to the minimum descent altitude, or MDA, of 2,760 feet. Until you get clearance to land, yeah? Well, until you have visual of the runway. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah. That's, that's, you get to a certain point and you're like, can you see it? Yes. Go. Can you see it? No. Go around. That's what minimum descent altitude is. We haven't talked about it in a while. 
but it yeah. we have talked about it several times. A yes, lot of times. in a row. Thanks, guys. <laughs> well, the wreckage was found. Okay, so let me back up again and say the minimum descent altitude was 2,760 feet. Right. The wreckage was found at an elevation of 2,546 feet. So just so shy of them. Just underneath MDA. So we already know something went wrong there, and they were found about 1,800 feet southeast of the intersection, which means, since they were heading in a northeasterly direction, that they hadn't even reached the intersection yet. And they had already descended below oh, 3,500 feet. Oh, that's a boo-boo. Big boo-boo. Investigators determined that the crew somehow misidentified the O-Lake intersection. In the wreckage, investigators found that both navigation re- receivers were tuned to the localizer frequency of 109.9. The number one distance measuring equipment, or DME, the hold function, and the RNAV switches were all off, but the number two DME switch was engaged. Investigators were unable to pinpoint exactly how the crew might have misidentified Oleg, but did present three circumstances in which that could happen. Okay. In the first scenario, the crew could have been tuned to the localizer frequency of 109.9, but still had their distance measuring equipment, or DME, pulling the information for the Spokane VOR, which would have been done by using the hold function. So, how do I put this? So the Spokane VOR is where the O-Lake intersection is. Okay. They could have tuned to the that VOR previously, put hold to keep it reading that data, and okay. then tune the frequency to something else so that they could switch to it quickly later. Okay. This scenario might seem kind of confusing if you aren't looking at the approach chart for Runway 3, which we have on our website. So it's easy just hearing this to think it shouldn't be a problem if the DME was using the Spokane VOR instead of the localizer. The Spokane VOR should be at the end of the runway, right? Well, it's not. Oh, it should be. The Spokane VOR is actually four and a half miles southwest of the runway on the approach path. Ah. So by using that VOR instead, they are more than four miles off in distance rather than using the localizer. Does that make sense? Yeah. If this scenario had happened, the crew might have started descending like four miles early. Right. This same kind of thing is applicable to the next two scenarios. In the second scenario, the number two navigation radio could have been on the Spokane VOR for the entire approach, and the first officer could have been using the number one nav for the localizer guidance until just before impact, and then change the number two navigation receiver to the localizer. So that would reflect how they found both of them being on the localizer frequency. Right. And then in the third scenario, the crew could have read the chart wrong and been using the Spokane VOR distance instead of the localizer and could have changed the instruments to reading the localizer when they found out their error right before impact. The common theme between all of these is that the instruments would have shown the localizer frequency at impact, which is what the instruments in the wreckage showed, but they somehow used the Spokane VOR for distance instead of the localizer. They all have the same result. Now, investigators think that the first option with using the hold function is the most plausible but can't discount the other two theories. So you may be asking how exactly investigators surmise these scenarios, and it's because this isn't the first time such a mistake has been made on this runway. Maybe they should change where the DME is at. (laughs) We'll get to that later. (laughs) So I'm going to, forgive me, verbatim read some of all of these previous circumstances. These pilots had not reported these incidents to the reporting entity, which was NASA. 
because each was embarrassed and believed their circumstance to be an isolated incident. Okay, first of all, if you know you're having trouble with something, especially when you're f- flying an airplane full of people, and maybe maybe these aren't passenger flights, they and aren't. if they're not, then they're not, no. but you should still say something just in case. Well, it was more of, oh, I messed this up, my bad, this, that was my bad, I'm sorry. To be fair, all of the information is on the chart. Yes. So misinterpreting the information on the chart is on the pilot. But but that being said, I mean there's, there's so more than close. one of these. Yeah. Additionally, many were unaware of the aviation safety reporting system or the ASRS or how to file these to NASA. Which nice. seems hinky to me, but a little bit. So, the first one, an air taxi pilot with more than 6,000 total flight hours and accompanied by an instructor pilot, was flying the localizer 3 procedure in simulated instrument conditions. The pilot stated that he had tuned the Spokane Vortac, placed the DME in the hold position to retain the Spokane DME information, and then tuned the runway 3 localizer, just like the first scenario. He descended to the minimum descent altitude after he reached 4.2 miles from the Spokane Vortac. Ah. Not the runway. The instructor pilot advised him of the error. He stated he was not prepared for a localizer with a DME, and was expecting the Vortac to read the distance from the airport. Ah. He also stated that he had flown all the instrument approaches in the Spokane area that day in two different aircraft. The second story. A United States Air Force instructor pilot was administering instrument flight training to an experienced pilot. During the Localizer 3 approach, the pilot tuned the Spokane Vortac instead of the localizer DME and began a descent, 4.2 miles before reaching the Olake intersection. The instructor pilot recalled that the air traffic controller twice questioned their report that they had passed Olake. However, both Air Force pilots believed they were following the procedure correctly, so the controller's inquiries did not cause concern. The instructor pilot cautioned the pilot about the terrain. The descent was stopped and the approach was completed under visual conditions. The instructor pilot stated that the incident had occurred on a hot day at the end of a tiring flight. He believed that fatigue and workload may have contributed to the error. Once on the ground, the two pilots discussed the procedure and determined what error had been made. Later classroom discussions with 11 other experienced Air Force pilots indicated that all 11 pilots were confused with the same procedure. Proving that the chart is confusing. Yes. Next story. A chief pilot for a a major public utility company tuned the Spokane Vortac and began a descent to 2,760 feet, which is the MDI, while about 8 miles from the Spokane Vortac. The pilot was flying a Localizer 3 approach in instrument meteorological conditions. An air traffic controller observed the aircraft's position and altitude data block, and he advised the pilot to pull up. The pilot climbed back to a safe altitude and a normal landing was made. As a result of the controller's prompt actions, he received a letter of commendation from his supervisors. Next story. A Washington State Aeronautics official descended prematurely during a localizer 3 procedure when he used the Spokane Vortac for distance information. Okay, so this seems (laughs) to be a common occurrence. Very common occurrence. common theme. He stated he was advised by air traffic control of this distance from Olake and that he had a feeling something was wrong. He reported Olake and descended. When he broke out of the undercast, he realized he was in the wrong position, meaning he saw the ground. Yeah. He attributed his error to being rushed and his inattention to the approach chart. An Air Force pilot flying under the hood during an instrument training flight, meaning all outside of the cockpit is blocked. They're just looking at instruments. Yeah. 
selected the Spokane Vortac rather than the Localizer channel during a Localizer 3 instrument approach. He began a premature descent to MDA, but was advised by the safety pilot of the error when the aircraft approached the terrain west of the Vortac. The pilot discussed the approach with six other Air Force pilots later, and most of them expressed confusion with the procedure. Have you all seen a theme? Yes. They need to move the DME. The, the Vortac? Yeah. The yeah. Vortac, yes. Just a thought. So, now we have to understand the circumstances that facilitated this mistake. The crew had an increased workload with the runway change, having to change their number one navigation receiver to the localizer three approach, but this wouldn't have been active until 11.34 and 12 seconds. Why? Because they had to change the ILS from the other runway, as I mentioned earlier. So one of the navigation receivers, number two, had to remain on the Spokane VOR as it was the only aid that they had until the ILS frequency was made available. Okay. It would have been reasonable for the captain to select hold on the DME mode selector while the receiver changed to the localizer. It's one way to reduce workload so that they just had to flip the switch later instead of entering a full frequency. The investigators determined that two events most likely caused the crew to forget to switch from the Spokane VOR to the localizer frequency. The first was an air traffic control transmission. ATC said, Cascade 201, localizer should be up, six miles from Olake, cleared for the approach. To which they responded, there it is, we're cleared for the approach 201. At which point, investigators state that the crew was probably focused on the movement of the localizer indicator and the approach clearance, but didn't register that air traffic control said six miles from Olake. Yes. And actually began descending as if they were already at Olake. The second event was the landing gear and the landing gear warning horn that one of the survivors reported. He described the warning horn and a light from where the gear handle was located, which does turn red and has a buzzer if the landing gear doesn't extend when the throttles reduce below 79%. A survivor also reported that he heard the landing gear cycle twice, but investigators think that this was the landing gear lowering for real and the flaps being extended, as that can kind of be a similar sound to the untrained ear. Okay. So having to cycle the landing gear was another distraction. Now, there's one last question to answer, which I almost didn't catch. So they descended from 3,500 feet way before they were supposed to. Right. We got that. And they should have gone down to minimum descent altitude. So why did they go under descent altitude? There you altitude? go. Yeah. The short of it is, we don't know. Maybe they just weren't paying attention to their altitude because they had so much other stuff they had to do. Quote. <laughs> It is possible the first officer allowed the aircraft to descend below MDA as a result of poor piloting technique. It is also possible that the flight crew had acquired intermittent ground contact and decided to descend below MDA to acquire visual contact with the approach light system, which they believed to be directly ahead. Finally, the descent could have been intentional when the aircraft had reached the 3.8 DME point from the Spokane Vortac, which the flight crew may have erroneously believed was the visual descent point shown on the approach chart. However, descent was authorized only if runway environment was in sight. There is no factual basis to support any of these reasons for descent below MDA. However, descent below MDA under the conditions existing for Flight 201 was contrary to regulations and company procedures. End quote. Which, yes, you're not supposed to go below MDA unless you see the runway, so. No matter what, somehow, some way, this is pilot error. Yep, That's it is. That's what they do know. Definitively pilot error. Yeah, like, it's... They they use the that wrong... That is a done thing, yes. 
the wrong. They used Spokane instead of Oleg. Well, Spokane is Oleg. They used Spokane instead of the localizer. Oh, okay. Yeah. The localizer would be at the end of the runway. And, oh, and Spokane, Spokane and Olake not... are in the same place. Olake being the intersection and Spokane being the vortex. Okay, maybe I'm not understanding this. Spokane and Olake are synonymous. Basically. They're in the exact same place. They are two different things, but they're in the exact same place. So, they had the wrong frequency up then? Yes, they should have been using the localizer frequency, which leads them to the end of the runway. But, as far as distance... Spokane Vortac is four and a half miles before that. So when they read they were four and a half miles from the end of the runway, they're like, oh, let's descend, even though they were like nine miles out. Okay. They I were... guess I didn't really understand that those were synonymous. Yeah. Yes. But that makes sense. Again, if if you guys are confused by any of this, we have the approach chart on our website. That's what I had to rely on. Well, and if I'm confused... Of course, the pilots are going to be yeah. confused. Exactly. Like, hello. You, pretty, you pretty much demonstrated exactly <laughs> yeah. the point. Like, wait, what? That's not what I thought. Yeah. See, to me, it feels like now this is coming from someone who doesn't fly, you know. Yeah. I feel like the Spokane VOR, if it's on the approach path, should be at the end of the runway or really freaking close should to it. Should be on the airport grounds. A lot of them are also midfield somewhere. But okay, but it's close. It should be at the airport. Well, yeah, like you should have is, visual of the runway by the time you're over the VOR. This is pretty yes. similar to what happened in the the Korean Air I covered as a yeah. Miranda episode. Yes, where it was the the localizer was way far away from where the end of the runway was. Yes, and it it screwed everything up. Yeah, it should be on airport grounds so that if a pilot makes that mistake, they can they're see not the runway. gonna crash. Yeah, yeah. Right. No, in this case, it was four and a half miles away. Technically, the DME was 0.3 miles from, or the localizer was 0.3 miles from the end of the runway. But it's close enough. Yeah. So you could see the end of the runway. All those times previously where it said 4.2, like this pilot started descending 4.2 miles out, that's because it should read 4.2 miles from the end of the runway is right. when you start descending. Or from the localizer, I'm sorry. It should read 4.2 miles from the localizer which is 4.5 miles from the runway, it's a whole thing. See? Confusing. Because, like, Denver's is south of DIA. Yes, but within visual. Like, if you are over the VOR, you can see the runway. It's on airport grounds. That's just my thoughts on that. Now, you mentioned this should change, right? It didn't. It didn't. Kind of. The VOR is still there, but the chart has changed. Okay, so... In this day and age, with the technology that we have, the MDA is not no longer applicable at this airport. It is not on any of the approach charts. The Spokane VOR is still 4.1 miles from the runway. Yep. So I don't know if the runway got lengthened in that direction or if the VOR itself moved, but it is still 4-plus miles from the runway threshold. Yeah, more than likely it's the runway that changed, and not the VOR. They don't usually move them if they don't have to, because that's a really big task. It changes airways and stuff, too. But um, avionics and navigation and instrumentation has all changed to make landing at airports, for the most part, automated. Depending on the airport. Yeah. yeah. And now the way that they have it set up, too, on the chart, it's very obvious what the localizer frequency is versus what the VOR frequency is. They're no longer so close together on the chart. 
and it's all separated. And then uh, the O Lake intersection is no longer depicted on here, adding to the confusion. Correct. The O Lake's intersection no longer exists. So basically the chart is just a lot cleaner and it's a lot harder to mess this one up. We should, tentatively. We have to get the updated chart from Brendan. But we will have both the ILS localizer chart as well as the VOR chart on our website for currently, as of July 2021. So you can see the difference and how much cleaner it is and easier to understand. And you can also visually see on the descent profile that there is no longer a minimum descent altitude. All right. With that, we're going to take a brick break. We're going to get back with some findings and wrecks. Sort of. Maybe. Kind of. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. And we're back. Hello. Welcome back. So, we are going to preface this next part of the everything. In that the report reads awful. I mean, it is... It was scanned in. <laughs> Half of the sentences are gone. It definitely is really, really hard to read. The they, findings. They showed me when I got here today and I went, uh-oh. <laughs> so, I'm going to do my best and try to read them to you from the report. The good news is somebody posted the probable cause elsewhere. Yes, so, so. you can read that elsewhere. <laughs> oh, and one of the recommendation pages is upside down, so that's also a load of fun. Oh, fun. Yeah. So, for the findings. I do know that I get to skip over the first three because they are the typical first three, which is that everything was fine and everybody was qualified. Except that obviously everything wasn't fine. Let's get into what wasn't fine. Number four. The air traffic controller handling of the flight into the Spokane terminal area was proper, which is important because they wanted to rule out that the air traffic controller wasn't the problem. And the gist of it is, they weren't. They found that the flight crew was not performing at expected levels of professional proficiency on the day of the accident for unknown reasons. So basically, they just weren't doing their job the way they were supposed to be doing it. For well, unknown obviously, because they hit the ground. I mean, obviously, there's, <laughs> there's... Well, but there is some level of confusion, obviously, that could have happened. For a whole host of reasons, but end result, they descended early and shouldn't have. And they descended below where they should have. Right. And they hit the ground. They hit not air. Yes. Yep. Thank you for that. <laughs> that said, they found that the flight crew had sufficient time to review the Localizer 3 approach chart. So between all of the vectoring and such, they had enough spacing between air traffic control transmissions that they had sufficient time to review the approach chart. Yep. And didn't. They, they literally just didn't know where they were. Like, at all. And I, I can't entirely blame them. I mean, I can. But since it had happened before, it wasn't entirely their fault. I mean, the confusion is definitely... Facilitated. Yes, but every one of the other pilots landed okay. They didn't crash, so... Because they were in visual conditions. Right. So I, or were in visual conditions in just in time to see the ground. Right. Whereas they had nothing. Right. The next one definitely has a word I have not been able to figure out. Okay. <laughs> we'll try to piece it together like a puzzle. So if you want to help me, this would be great. 
It says the, the flight crew probably had blank navigation receivers tuned to the localizer frequency just before the aircraft intercepted the localizer course. Both. Had both mm-hmm. navigation receivers? Okay. There we go. The because fl- they were found that way, too. Yeah. So the flight crew probably had both navigation receivers tuned to the, lo- the localizer frequency just before the aircraft intercepted the localizer course. Both. Both is good. Both is good. They found that the DME radio selector was probably set to the hold position during the interception of the localizer course and the instrument approach. The most likely of the three scenarios I presented earlier. Yep. Makes the most sense. It does. But that doesn't mean that one of the other two didn't happen. I mean, yes. Hence, all three were presented. The flight crew did not realize the actual position of the aircraft when... Flight 201 was cleared for the instrument approach. So they weren't aware of where they were. They didn't have any spatial awareness of where they were. Now, granted, no. they were in the clouds, but they didn't have any spatial awareness of where they were in relation to the, the VOR and the localizer in the airport. Correct. Even though the ATC told them, yes. told them where they you were. were six yes. miles it's like from they completely just didn't hear it at all. They yep. didn't grasp that. They found that the gear warning horn and light prevented a distraction to the flight crew at a time when the Flight crew should have been positioning the DME mode selector to the number one or number two position. Yeah, I mean, they had other distractions. Yep. Apart from also not paying attention to where they were. Yep. They did find that the Localizer 3 approach chart could cause confusion by portraying two DME frequencies without including a precautionary note to pilots about use of the correct frequency. Thank you. See? There you go. Confusing. Confusing. Yep. Change it. The flight crew descended prematurely to the minimum descent altitude based on a 4.2 DME indication which emanated from the Spokane Vortac. Based. Thank you. I could not figure out what that one was. <laughs> I, I'm just looking at some random little black dots on the page, basically. Oh, gosh. It's, maybe I'll put in a screenshot for you guys to see how bad it is. Because it's so bad. That's what he was trying to read. It's, it's literally like hieroglyphics. Like, you can't. <laughs> yeah. We're trying our best here. Yep. Oh, they get so much worse the further we go. <laughs> so, but we're, we're just going to keep going here. They found that the premature descent was a result of improper operation of the DME mode selector. So, they didn't. Use it properly? <laughs> yep. They found that the flight crew failed to identify the localizer DME facility. So, they didn't know where it was. They found that the aircraft was in instrument meteorological conditions at impact. So, they in other words, they couldn't see anything. Right. They found that the flight crew apparently noted the DME mode selector error just before impact, but not in time to initiate a climb to a safe altitude, which is too bad. Yeah. The reason They found that the reason the flight descended 114 feet below the minimum descent altitude is not known. Yes. Which, I mean, is true. There's no black boxes, so they don't have anything to back up. There's, it's just anything. speculation. They only have speculation. Yeah. Ah, the next one. The public address system was inoperative, so the before landing, I'm assuming, announcement was not heard in the cabin. There you go. There's a lot that, there was a lot of interpretation there, so. Made sense. Okay. We found that passengers did not have their seatbelts fastened. Not all passengers. Yes, not all passengers. We found that the accident was... Non-survivable. Non-survivable because of the impact forces which created... Which exceeded... Oh, yeah, exceeded. Human tolerance for seatbelt-only restrained occupants and something-something, high G-forces, and the disruption of the seat and restraint system. Yep. This is along (laughs) the lines of the turtle thing. (laughs) Yeah. Almost. It's not that bad. No, at least it's actually written in English. Point is, 
the forces were too high for them to survive with just a seatbelt. Which is kind of funny that two people survived. They, they were the minority. Well, yes. They did have their seatbelt on, which was good. They found that the passengers who survived did so because they had they, they had fastened their seatbelts and assumed, assumed a, a braced brace position. position. Which one of them did state that he saw the ground literally probably less than a second before they hit. And so he was on his way into a brace position when they struck the ground the first time. Because your instinct is to cover your face. Right. Which was actually the right thing to do. Turns out. Fun fact. One of the car accidents I was in, first thing I did, cover my face. Did I hit the side of my head? Absolutely. But you didn't hit your face. I didn't hit my face. That's good. They found that many pilots are not aware of the ASRS or how to make ASRS reports, which is the reporting. Which is the aviation safety reporting system that gets sent to NASA Mm. at that time. Now it's probably sent to the FAA. Yeah. Okay. The illegible probable cause, which I'm pulling from another resource. Probable cause verbatim from the report, as much as someone could figure out. A premature descent to minimum descent altitude, MDA, based on the flight crew's use of an incorrect distance measuring equipment frequency and the flight crew's subsequent failure to remain at or above MDA. Contributing to the cause of the accident was the design of the DME mode selector, which does not depict the frequency selected and the failure of the flight crew to identify the localizer DME facility. That is one thing I did not talk about. DME at the time did not tell you what frequency you were on. Oh, that's a problem. So that probably changed. <laughs> I don't know how the heck do you use it then? Good no question. idea. Fun. So that's what we got to work with. Yeah. Hopefully. So recommendations. So they actually have them on the Aviation Safety Network page, Ha-ha. which is great. So I can actually read them. All right. These are summaries. They're not verbatim like they usually are. Which is okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Verbatim, they're written out really long in the report anyways, and th- I'm not going to try to struggle reading through all of those. So I am good with these little abbreviated recommendations they've got. So these are coming from the Aviation Safety Network page, verbatim, just so you know. It's not actually from the report, and it's still not me writing this out. It's somewhere else. They recommended publishing a notice to airmen pertaining to the localizer approach to Runway 3 at Spokane International Airport, Spokane, Washington, emphasizing the need to use the IOLJ distance measuring equipment once established on the final approach course to Runway 3. I just tried to look up what IOLJ is, and the internet has no idea. Well, here's the thing, and it tells you actually whether or not these were used. Oh, recommendations. Oh, have we just forsaken Aviation Safety Network this whole time, and it tells us this? Maybe. It says closed. Unacceptable action. So this was not done? No. Recommended adding a precautionary note in the plan view section of the chart for a localizer approach to runway 3 at Spokane International Airport, Spokane, Washington, such as, and then it doesn't finish that one. I assume it comes with a demonstration. Probably. That one was also closed to unacceptable action. However, that being said, that's, it's no longer an issue. Yeah. All of this changed. I mean, the localizer's still there and the VOR's still there. But it is depicted more clearly without having to have a precautionary note. Yes. Recommended reviewing all approach procedures and identifying those airports that have a localizer or instrument landing system approach with distance measuring equipment facilities at two points along the final approach course, leading to the possibility of erroneous tuning and add a precautionary note on the pertinent approach chart. This was also an unacceptable action. This is because technology advanced. Yes. And also, they just limited a lot of this. A lot of VORs are actually starting to go away. 
which is helping with this. It's such an outdated system with all of the resources that we have nowadays. Yes. In relativity, it is. It is still a handy thing to learn because it is a really good way to learn spatial orientation and aviation. And if there's ever an apocalypse, those things will probably still be working. Yep. That much is true. They're committed alerting pilots to the potential for error in making approaches at airports equipped with distance measuring equipment at two points along the final approach course through publication of appropriate precautionary information in the Airman's Information Manual. This one was taken. Yep. Which is probably why they didn't do most of the previous things. Yeah. They're like, we told pilots specifically that this is an issue. Yes. I mean, as long as you train on it, I think this would be a relatively fixable Easy issue. That, yeah, fix. They're coming to requiring in future radio navigation instrument installations that all frequencies being received through navigational receivers that are providing essential navigational information, directional guidance, or distance be displayed so that the source of the navigational signal can be readily discerned by the pilot. So have the instrument actually say what frequency it's tuned to. Yes. Which was a really easy fix, as it turns out, even in analog systems. Well, and now in you know most airplanes that have glass cockpits... It's just displayed on the yep. display. I mean, it's just such a simple thing. They recommended establishing for aircraft used in commercial operations the maximum cockpit noise levels, which will permit adequate direct voice communication between flight crews under all operation condi- operating conditions. I don't know what... You know, this one was unacceptable, and I agree, because how can you really regulate that, for one? And two, most of the time you're supposed to have a headset anyways to talk to one another. Yeah, I don't know how they would have made the... They didn't have a CVR. Right, so they really couldn't determine if that was an issue. This one makes no sense to me. Okay. But an an interesting thought. We'll leave it at that. Recommended requiring the installation and use of crew interphone systems in the cockpits of those aircraft in which noise levels reach or exceed the maximum level established for adequate direct voice communication between flight crews under all operating conditions. Again, the headset thing. Did they not have a headset thing? In this airplane, I mean, I guess they could have not. And technically, in general aviation, which are very loud airplanes when you're inside them, don't mm-hmm. need to. They have a little uh, radio microphone for talking to air traffic control and then a speaker usually in the so ceiling. So maybe, maybe this was based off of the survivor statements. And that could be. That could be. Because I didn't, I didn't read anything about that. That doesn't mean that I skimmed right past it. That is entirely possible. I didn't see anything about it anywhere either, though. It wasn't in their witness testimonies that I saw. So, it, yeah, this seems I mean, odd. headsets just fix that. But again, this was an unaccepted thing. Well, so this and the previous recommendation were both superseded in 1986, probably by requiring headsets. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and in most cases, they just use them anyways. It just... Simple thing. The last three were acceptable actions, so they took these. They recommended establishing formal human performance criteria for the development and evaluation of instrument approach procedures and instrument approach charts. So just taking the human factor into account when you create these charts. And, and make it easy to read. Yes, make it easy to read, make it easy to follow. I pro- So I was working on this at my last day at work. Probably not a great thing. Whatever. I stared at that approach chart for, for a, a solid 10 minutes trying to figure out what the hell was going on yeah and i eventually texted nick and i was like i have no idea what this says <laughs> are spokane and olake the same they are basically in the same He's spot like, yes, yes. And I'm like, <sighs> see that was the same problem i had <laughs> yeah literally it's not if they're gonna be the same thing first of all why are they both why, why is are th- there an intersection yeah there's right. not anymore 
Yes. Which is, yeah, like if they're going to be the same thing, what's the point of having two there? The other thing for me is why even put the intersection on the approach chart because it's irrelevant when you're on an approach. If you're doing, if you need the approach chart, then you're trying to do the approach and that intersection is really irrelevant. You should not be using that intersection Anything. You should be using the VOR. The VOR, and then right there. and then all the reporting points along the way, and all the uh, all the waypoints along the way. But that usually isn't an intersection. That's a whole different thing. Anyways, continuing on, they recommended establishing human performance checklists or guidelines for use by by procedures specialists and flight inspection pilots when evaluating new approach procedures. So, actually, having a standardized method of testing using new procedures. Yep. Which is good, because then you know what's wrong with them before yep. you give them in to pilots. Correct. And the last one, they recommend assigning personnel trained in human engineering and human performance to the Interagency Air Cartographic Committee and the Interagency Committee for Flight Information. So having human factors engineers be part of the chart-making process. Which is a brilliant thing, because it really needs to happen. It probably is now. Yep. Actually... That they required it. Yes. So it it is a thing now. Can confirm. So this was worked on. So all this to say that, you know, enough changed at this specific airport that that's not an issue. And then they looked into the issue further at other airports and have likely fixed, fixed it. Yeah. Fixed this issue. Charts are a lot. I mean, there's still a lot to read now, but they are pretty clean. And if as long as you start getting used to how they work, it's very quick to find the information you're looking for. And they should not be confusing. So there you go. Cascade Airlines? Airways. 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 Flight 201? Correct. Correct. Ah, yeah, I remembered this time. Thanks so much for listening, friends. Remember to check out our Patreon. You can get cool stuff like post-episode conversations, my episodes, my our post-episodes for those episodes, blooper reel stuff. Blooper reels are comedy oh, gold. You guys don't hear it if you, <laughs> if you haven't listened to the blooper They're so funny. Miranda listens to them when she's having a bad day <laughs> they make me laugh especially when brendan's on it's like that's fair it, you end it'll, up with it'll like, cheer you up you end up with an extra 20 minutes of it one episode gave me 20 minutes of blooper reel footage yeah it's great quality quality stuff all right friends thank you so much for listening we hope you have a safe and healthy week we'll catch you all next week keep, keep your speed up, up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.